Well, tonight we'll be back in the book of Acts. We don't have too terribly much more to go through the book of Acts. And then um, I want to do something. I guess I'm being impressed to do this, and, and, and I keep praying about it. And the more I keep praying about it and, and thinking it over, I feel like God has impressed me to do this. So uh, I'm still continuing to pray. But I want us to do something, uh, especially in the starting of the new year. We may pick it up in December. I'm not sure. But whenever we begin studying the scriptures in the new year, we're going to kind of do a boot camp. And let me tell you what I mean by that. People often say that they would like to have a very, very in-depth Bible study. I'm I'm talking about even more than what we're doing right now. uh, To really understand the scriptures, to understand the biblical revelation, the story of God. uh, I guess you would say salvation history from the beginning all the way through. And what we will do is just that. We're going to be starting in the book of Genesis. But if you have said, I want to understand how this all fits together in history. What is it that God has revealed? Not just some main points, but to really go in book by book. And each saints, it'll probably take us a better part of a year to do that. But what it will do is it will open your eyes up to, I guess, a depth of God's love, his grace, uh, the heart of our Father. And what he wants to reveal to his people. And what he has through history, even up to this point. But it gives us, I guess, an eye on the word of God that maybe you haven't taken before. Maybe you have. I don't know. But unless you have really set your heart to say, Father, I want to see this book uh, piece by piece. The way you really put it together and the purposes for which you did that. uh, People, it's amazing. It really is, and I believe that it'll be a blessing to you. So we'll pick that up after we finish with Acts. But tonight, like I said, we're going to be in the book of Acts, and we will be in chapter 22 in just a moment. We're going to be in Acts chapter 22, so if you want to go ahead and start flipping there, you're certainly welcome to do so. We will probably start around somewhere verse 7 is where we'll start in just a moment. But just kind of giving you some background. Father, bless the reading of your word, your teaching tonight, glorify Lord God, glorify your name in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Remember, one of the things that we talked about the last time we had the opportunity to look at the book of Acts is that Paul is not against. It seems like because there is a rallying of people against Paul or against the gospel for that. And it seems like the Jewish people as a whole are against the gospel. That is not the case. Jews, tons of Jews for that matter, many, many Jews are coming to Christ Jesus, not just the Gentiles, but many Jews are coming to Christ and they are trying to figure things out. They don't understand how all of this works. And if you remember when Paul was coming to Jerusalem, what we're seeing right here is there were Jews that had heard about Jesus. They're accepting the concept and the idea of Jesus, but they haven't understood the work of Jesus. That is Christ being the fulfillment of the law. That is in Christ Jesus, the righteous requirement of the law is met because of you and I who did not meet that righteous requirement because the condemnation from breaking God's holy law that was falling to us, Christ Jesus came into this world. He lives that life in perfect submission to the Father, absolutely holy, sinless life, and in his death he dies in our place. 
That is, the wrath of God that was coming upon us is placed upon Jesus Christ. He is judged. He is condemned in our place. All the wrath coming to us is is laid upon him. And we now, as he takes our sin, his righteousness is imputed to us. That is, it is given to us. Even though we're not righteous, it is still given to us that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? So whenever God looks upon us, it is not that he's looking at us in our own merits because in our own merits we'd be condemned. But whenever he looks upon us, he sees the sacrifice of his son, which goes back to the Old Testament. Whenever you think about the Passover, okay, whenever God told them, he said a plague is coming. If you remember all the plagues that were coming upon Egypt, God was protecting his people. He would protect them. They were in the land of Goshen. God said, I will show you that I divide between you or I choose between you and my people. And he said, these plagues that are coming, they're not going to touch my people. So whether it was the locusts, whether it was the flies, whatever it was that was coming upon the land, uh, the Egyptians were, were, were cursed with these things and the Israelites are spared. But whenever it came to the killing of the firstborn, the last plague that was poured out upon Egypt, God didn't say, Israelites, you will be spared of this too. He says, no, death is coming. He said, and all the firstborn, man, beast, he said, they're going to be killed. This plague is coming. He said, but there is a way to be free. And the way to be free is you're going to take a lamb without spot and with, without blemish. You know, and, and we see this imagery of Jesus Christ here. And as a matter of fact, the New Testament authors even point to Jesus, the, sacri- the sacrificial, and also the Passover lamb. But he tells them, there is a way that you, my people, Israel, may be spared. You will take this lamb and you will kill it. And he talks about they'd have to eat all of it. But they're going to take this blood, and he said, you're going to put it on the door of your house. You'll put it along the edges of your door, and on the top, on the lintel, you will put the blood. And he says, whenever I come, when the plague comes to your house, he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I will spare you. This plague will not come near your dwelling. Well, it's the same way in Christ Jesus. When the blood of Jesus is upon our lives, it's not our righteousness because in and of ourselves, we would be killed. We would die. We would suffer his judgment. But in Christ Jesus, when he sees his righteousness, his blood, his sacrifice, God passes over us. He accepts us. He brings us close to him because the wrath that was there has now been settled. We no longer have to be at arm's length with God. We can now come boldly before his throne of grace. Well, let me go back to what I'm getting at here. Paul's heart and desire is for his brethren, not just the Gentiles whom he did, he was called to and did go to, But Paul is regularly in the synagogue. He is ministering and and trying to share with his fellow countrymen the truth of Jesus Christ. Because this, think, think of it this way. Paul recognizes that in his former conduct in Judaism, he was blind too. He did not see. He thought, and we're going to see this in Paul's conversion, but he thought he was persecuting people, or rather, let me rephrase this, he wasn't persecuting anybody. Paul was standing up righteously, and he was trying to do away with these people who were unfaithful to the Lord God, that did not serve the Lord God, that they choose as Jesus over the Lord. And so because of that, he was trying to get these people of the way. 
as we saw in the scriptures many times, way being capitalized. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and life. These people of Christ Jesus, he's trying to do away with them. And now having come to Christ, now having his eyes open, like when Ananias came to him and he laid hands on him and the scales fall off of his eyes, he physically now can see, but spiritually he can see that the whole time he has been persecuting Jesus that he has not been working in unison with God, that he hasn't been a champion for God, but rather he is resisting the truth, that he has become a persecutor of the men and the women of God. And that had to break his heart, but to realize that in all of his zealousness, he was not zealous for the Lord at all. He was zealous in trying to destroy what God was doing. And God in his mercy and grace chose this champion for wrong to make him a champion for right. Now, Paul, in turn, is zealous for his countrymen. He wants their eyes to be open as well. So when Paul is ministering, he is sincere. Even whenever he argues with the Jews, why would he go through so many pains and torments? Why did he allow himself to be flogged, okay, like Jesus was, Paul and Silas, early on? Why did he allow these different things to take place? Why didn't he stand up for his right? Because he is trying as desperately, as hard as he can, to bring his countrymen, to let them see Christ Jesus in him. Paul even talking about his life, not accepting a lot of the rights of the other apostles, monies and offerings and things like that, but working with his hands to not be a burden. He is trying to be this example. Well, what we have seen happening is Paul comes back to Jerusalem. And in coming back to Jerusalem, he finds out there's a lot of people that are learning about Jesus, but they're still of this persuasion. You must obey the law of Moses as well as Jesus Christ. And Paul's problem is no, no, no. And a thousand times, no. It's not that the law is bad. It's that you cannot in the law in and of itself find salvation. Salvation has never been by the law. And I know I'm I'm beating this horse again, but it's important for us to remember. Salvation from the beginning of Scripture through today has always been by faith. It has always been. Because human beings have failed perpetually, okay? Whether it be Adam and Eve, they ate of the tree. Whether it be you look at Moses and you see the different acts within his life and rebellion against God, not allowed to go into the promised land. You look at uh, Father Abraham, we even talked about him this morning. He's trying to deceive people with, you know, his sister and say, well, he really was his half-sister, okay? But just, just work with me on this. Human beings have not always been the most faithful and we fail in various ways. And so we fail God, but what does God do? God, in his grace, he provides a means, a covering for sin, yes, as an example of what sin does, but salvation has always been by faith. And Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteous. That's what Paul teaches over and over again. Long before the law came, people trusted and believed God and were made righteous in his eyes. We listened to him, okay? So Paul is trying to explain to them, no, it's not Jesus plus or minus anything. It's Jesus, faith in him alone. Now, it is good that we live righteous lives because just because we are not kept under the law anymore now that we have come to Christ and now the righteous requirement of the law is written on our heart does not mean that whenever God says we ought not commit adultery, we ought not steal, we ought not kill, 
shed innocent blood. We shouldn't be coveting. It doesn't mean that all those things aren't righteous and good. They still apply to our lives just as much as they reflect the nature of God. But at the same time, salvation comes through faith in Christ Jesus. All right. So what's, what's happened is these people have taken Paul. They've bound him. You remember they tried to, to work something out. They said, Paul, look, these people are so zealous for the law, and they think you're a troublemaker. They think that you're trying to destroy the law and the prophets. So, Paul, we want you to go with these people who have taken a Nazarite vow. Go with them. Purify yourself. Go through the ceremonial cleansing. Pay their fees, whatever, so that the people will think that you're righteous and holy and that you are not destroying the law. And we see how that turned out. They grabbed him and beat him senseless. They thought they had killed him. Paul was beaten so bad they had to pick him up and carry him. And then Paul, as he's being carried, he finally comes to him and he says, Look, let me address the people. Let me talk to them. Maybe I can reason with them. Why? Because an insurrection could lead to them winding up being persecuted or killed. So Paul's trying to say, Hey, let me take this opportunity to settle the people down, but also let me take this opportunity to share Jesus. So Paul stands up and he addresses them, and people have debated this. If you go back at the words, you know, uh, you look at the language that he used, it could have been Hebrew, it could have been Aramaic. Aramaic was a common use for the term, but most translations say Hebrew, so I go with what most translations say. But either way, he was trying to communicate with them in their common language of the people, okay? So Paul begins addressing them. Whenever they hear Hebrew, they calm down and they start listening to what Paul has to say. Now, Paul begins sharing his testimony. So in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 7, God bless the reading of his word. It says it's Acts 22 and verse 7. So Paul talking about journeying to Damascus, and he says this light, this bright light shines all around him, and he ends up falling to the ground. It says, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We drew this out last time, and, and I try to draw this out every time, but it is important that we remember that Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my children? He said, why are you persecuting me? Whenever we, or let me rephrase this according to the scripture, however we treat our brethren, the Bible says that's how we're treating Jesus. You remember Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it to these, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Even if you gave a cup of cold water, if that's all you could give to a, a disciple, because you went to somebody and you said, look, I don't have anything else to give, but I can give you a cup of cold water because I love Jesus and because I want to minister to you. Jesus said, you will have reward for that. There will be reward. It's not the magnitude or the greatness in the world's eye. It's the attitude of the heart that pleases God, and God remembers that. But also remember, at the same time that we are good or kind, whether believer or unbeliever, persecuting other believers, Jesus said, oh, it's not them that you're after. That's my body. It's me that you're doing it to. So that's why we ought to be kind. So anyway, G Jesus speaks to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? So I answered, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Notice the, uh, I guess you'd say the description, the pointer there. There were people that were named Jesus during the time. There's other Jesuses recorded in Scripture. But Jesus of Nazareth is very, very specific. In other words, if anybody had any debate, uh, Paul, the person that you're trying to shut down, the person that you think that you are doing away with, 
uh, Paul, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just somebody that people happen to like. Paul, you're talking to God. And he says to Paul, he says, Paul, why? Why are you doing this? And he says, who are you, Lord? You know, obviously he's terrified, and he said, I am Jesus. Well, everything that Paul's done up to this point, there, there's no defense. There's no looking at Jesus. Well, hold on a minute, Jesus. You know, hold on. You know, I've read the scriptures, and I believe that you just shut up at that moment, okay? It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. At that moment, God is addressing him, and he realizes that he has blown it. But albeit in his ignorance, God shows him mercy. He's zealous, but he doesn't know what he's zealous for. Paul would even make that comment about his own countrymen. He would say they are zealous indeed for God, but they, they're ignorant of how they're supposed to be doing this. So he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me, the ones that were journeying with him to persecute the church, that's what they were doing, put them in prison. It says, the ones that journeyed with me indeed saw the light, and they were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? Now, people, that's a very, very good question. At that moment, what now, Jesus? I have no defense. I don't know what to say. Lord, everything in my life has just been turned on its head. And Lord, you have every right to destroy me right now. But what now? What do I need to do? What shall I do? What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go, to, go into Damascus, where you are going, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Now you remember Jesus is going to speak to Ananias. Now this is interesting to me, people. This is, is that sovereignty of God and responsibility of man intermingling here. So think about this for a minute. God in his sovereignty could have looked at Paul and said, okay, see, filled him with the Spirit, done everything that he was going to do right then and there. But God has chosen, even though he has intervened in the life of Paul, and he is being called as an apostle. Think about it. He has seen the Christ. He has been commissioned by Christ. So that makes him qualified as an apostle. And what he does is then Jesus goes and speaks to one of his disciples, to Ananias, and he says, now I need you to go and lay hands on him. And a lot of people speculate, well, it was a representative of the church. This person comes and do this, does this. Now he's accepting all these things. No, I, I, I'm not saying that that's not part of it, but I believe that what you're saying is the hand of God, the way he has chosen to work within his church. God chooses to move upon, among and within his body. And so whenever he calls Ananias, he is stretching out his hand. Now, Ananias in this case is not the priest or high priest, okay? This is a disciple, and he tells him, you need to go and you need to lay hands on Paul, this chosen vessel of mine. Now, if you remember, Ananias said, I, I don't think so, Jesus. I mean, he starts pulling uh, a Jonah at that moment, he's like, I don't want to go talk to this guy, Jesus. I don't know if you're aware. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're pretty up on things, Jesus, but this guy kills Christians. He imprisons them. And if I go and talk to him, he's going to kill me. He's going to do me. And he says, no, 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 Ananias. He's a chosen vessel of mine, and I will show him the great things that he must suffer. And if you remember, when Ananias went into him, he did not simply walk in there and say, all right, you dirty, filthy, stinking, mean person. 
If you remember when he walks in, he says, Brother Saul. Did you catch that? Brother. Brother Saul. He knows what Jesus is doing. So he comes and said, Brother Saul. He says, The Lord has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, I like using the term Holy Ghost because that's old school. You know, we say Holy Spirit today. But you say Holy Ghost, that's old school. Okay? It really is. So anyway. Arise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Verse 11. And since I could not see for the glory of the light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. Now understand, this is a Christian. Notice the mingling. Jews, having become Christian, who were faithful to the law, having now come to Christ. Okay? And are living by faith in him. So it says, he came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour, I looked up at him. He prays for me. You know, the Bible says something like scales came off his eyes, and he sees. Verse 14, it says, Then he said, The God of our fathers has spoken, or rather, excuse me, has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, that is, see Jesus, okay, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and of what you have heard. Verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Now, people, this is interesting. Because if you go back and you look at the accounts of Paul's conversion, it's recorded several times in the scripture, you get more insight. This is one of those that kind of gives us some background. We see that whenever he came in, he lays hands on him. We see what Ananias said, another aspect of what he says. We see also that he finally looks at him. He says, why are you waiting? He says, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So wait a minute, what's he saying there? He's telling him right now, you need to call out to Christ. Okay. Paul, yes, having experienced Christ, he's sharing more of Jesus with him. So anyway, he tells him, calling on the name of the Lord. And then he says, 17, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. Now here's another aspect of something that's going to be revealed to him. He's going to find out that in Jerusalem, he kind of needs to get out of there because right now these people are going to kill him when they start hearing what he's preaching. Okay. But anyway, whereas he might have spoke to the apostles and other things, we're also seeing a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says, while he was in a trance, he says, And I saw Jesus, him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now understand, this is at Paul's conversion. Paul has been back to Jerusalem many times. He's back at Jerusalem now. Okay? But what he's sharing with us is Christ was telling him early on, these people aren't going to listen. You need to get out of here. In other words, God was preserving him that he might learn, that he might grow, that he might minister, and eventually return, because we're going to see eventually he will have to testify in Rome. So verse 19, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you, revealing his persecution. 
And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consented to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Awful noble thing of him to do, right? Anyway, verse 21, then he said to me, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Paul's right there for just a moment. Now, Paul's giving his testimony, right? Paul's sharing with the people what's been going on. He's sharing how Jesus Christ appeared to him. He's speaking in, in Hebrew or Aramaic to the people. And as they're listening to him, they are receiving everything Paul has to say. But then he said something that in the Jewish mind, for some strange and unknown reason, that was unforgivable for them. He said, God said, I'm going to send you to Gentiles. People, you're going to see in just a moment, they're going to be infuriated. Catch this. And they listened to him, verse 22, and they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Excuse me? How do we go from, we don't like Paul, you know, to, to him saying that God has also forgiven the Gentiles, that God wants his love and life to go to Gentiles. Folks, I mean, unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile. That means probably all of us in this room are Gentiles. The love and the grace that has been shown to us, by the way, we talked about it this morning. It says, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? We've said that many times. But the point was, is that all nations would come to love, to know, and to serve God. The scripture, if you look through the prophets, it talks about a coming time in which the anointed king, the, the prophet like Moses, the king from the Davidic dynasty, that is, uh, from the lineage of David, a king would sit upon the throne of David forever that all kingdoms would worship there and the bible also says that one day we will all come to jerusalem that is to worship together all nations tongues all peoples not just jewish but even though the scripture foretold this this is one of those things that is running along the same grain as you remember the story of the good samaritan right by the way, to a Jew, the term good and Samaritan is an oxymoron. In other words, the two don't belong there. It's like saying girly man. Okay? Doesn't work. So whenever you say that a Samaritan was good, most Jews would have spit on the ground. They hated each other. It was mutual. And we've talked about the reason that that was so. But either way, it's the same thing. To say that God's love, that God's grace would be offered to these Gentiles, how could it be? And in some ways, there were probably Jews that realized the sins, the paganism, the horrible things that had happened. They're probably looking at Rome, okay? And they're looking at the tyranny of Rome, and they're, they're thinking to themselves, this can't be. Then there were probably other ones who just hated them. But either way, whether in their minds they thought they were justified in feeling this way, or whether it was just the ideology of the Jewish people at the time, it doesn't matter. The point is, is he said that God had called him, Christ Jesus had called him, and that he would also be going to the Gentiles, and they said, no more. We won't heal it, we won't hear it, and we want Paul dead. That's how serious they were about it. So the problem for me 
as how do you reconcile this? You remember how it said that there were many Jews that had learned about the way and that they were coming to the way of Christ, but they also still believed in the law of Moses. How do you take the teaching of Christ and reconcile that with that kind of attitude? It shows you a deficiency. It shows you a moral problem. It shows that their faith in Christ is not complete. Otherwise, they wouldn't try to shed innocent blood. Okay, so they say he's not fit to live. So verse 23, then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air. Boy, they just going at it, aren't they? Now understand this symbolism that you're seeing here. We know about the renting of the clothes, uh, symbolic of the renting of the heart, which is what it's supposed to be. That, that we are in anguish, that we're hurting. It was a physical, visible sign supposed to be to the outside that people are in anguish, that they are distraught, that they are... Uh, did y'all just hear somebody scream? It's like somebody tore their clothes back there. It's like, ah, I don't... Okay, anyway. In case you're wondering, your, par- your pastor hears things. I usually keep that to myself, but... Tonight, I didn't. Okay, so anyway, they're tearing the clothes, they're throwing up dust, it's showing that they're, and they're angry, they're hurt, they're, they're, they're broken, they are, you know, just distraught over what's going on. All right. So they throw dust in the air. So uh, verse 24, it says, And the commander, okay, the one that had originally got Paul, listen to these words. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and said that he should be examined, examined under scourging. People catch that. Scourging. This is not just Paul being, you know, smacked a couple of times. To be scourged, we're talking about the, the Roman uh, flagellum. What is it? Flagellum. Yes. Yes. Roman flagellum. i got to get these words correct. But anyway, it, it, it was a whip. Yes, it came down. But what they did was they took the straps and you'd have this handle that came off to it, but it came off almost like a pyramid coming off of it with a round, uh, I guess you'd say, piece in the middle to affix or separate the leather straps are on it. They put metal, they put bone, they put glass, they put all sorts of things on it. But the idea is that it was thorny on the end, and whenever it went around your body, it would dig into the body. So whenever you pulled it away, there were times that it could disembowel. That's how bad it was. But if you remember, we had this problem with Paul and Silas. They take them and they're beating them, but Romans could not be treated that way. And Paul, we know, is a Roman from birth, okay? A Roman from birth. He was born a Roman. So whether his parents were actually Mormons, uh, Mormons. (laughs) Didn't know they existed back then. But anyway, Romans... Okay, um, I know that Cilicia and uh, some other places were actually made Roman provinces. So whether they had purchased their, their or, or were granted their Roman citizenship, his father or his grandfather, we don't know. But either way, Paul is born an actual Roman citizen. Now, to bind a Roman was considered a crime, especially if you hadn't heard anything about him. If there was no real crime to be done, and to bind him was a crime. Cicero even talked about this. It said to, fly, to flog a Roman or to hit or strike a Roman, is a better way to say it, was considered criminal. To put a Roman to death, uh, according to Cicero, it was like murdering a parent. The crime was akin to that. You just didn't do it. But here's the deal. 
Whenever it says that they take him in here, listen to these words. They're getting ready to examine him under scourging. It said so that they might know why they shouted against him. Verse 25, it says that they bound him with thongs. By the way, explaining this idea of thongs here. What they're talking about is leather straps. They're talking about taking Paul's clothing off, binding his hands up like this because they're getting ready to scourge him. That's what it's talking about. So Paul, a Roman, has actually been not only bound, but he's tied to a pole at this moment, and they're getting ready to scourge him. So let's just move on with this. They figure, you know, who's this little Jewish peon? He's causing all sorts of problems. We'll, we'll beat him senseless, and we'll figure out what's going on. So verse 25, it says, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? All he did was make the comment. Okay? Then the commander came and said to the commander, uh, and said to him, Ooh, excuse me. Sorry. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Verse 27. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes, I am. Verse 28. Then the commander answered, and he said, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. In other words, whenever he became a Roman, he had to pay a very large sum of money. Now, there were situations in which Roman citizenship could be granted for serving in the military. A lot of times there were those at particular times that would bribe and pay very large sums of money. I'm not saying this was the case here, but sometimes they could bribe their way into citizenship once it was granted. That's great. But for whatever reason, he says, look, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. And Paul said to him, but I was born a citizen. In other words, I'm all natural. I am a Roman. Now we got a problem, folks. Because the fact that he bound him, the fact that he even put something on him before he even came to be scourged was wrong. The second thing is for him to be tied to a pole and to have his clothes pulled down like that because they're getting ready to scourge him. The Roman's in a lot of trouble right now. He can't do that. So anyway, let's see what happens. He said, I was born a citizen. Verse 29. Okay, I'm going to have to close up in just a second. Then immediately those who were about to examine him, that is, beat him, they withdrew. They withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid. You think? Because it could happen to him right now, because he has committed a crime. After he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. Now, I just want to read just a couple of verses, and then we'll close. It says, and the next day, because he wanted to know for certain. In other words, the Roman's like, okay, well, well let me figure out what's going on. Is there really a reason for us to even have Paul here? So he wanted to know why he was accused by the Jews. He released Paul from his bonds and commanded the chief priest and the other council to appear. And they brought Paul down and sat him before them. So in verse chapter 23, Paul's going to be standing before basically the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Pause. Has Paul done anything wrong at this point? No. 
So Paul is starting to speak, and he's trying to say, I have tried to live in good conscience. I've tried to do right by my people, especially before my God, and also by Rome is what he's saying. And I want you to catch something that happens here. And the high priest Ananias, not the other one we were talking about, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I want you to see, it's Paul standing there, and this guy just walks over and just whack. I mean, he just nails him. Now, there's a problem, folks. Can't do that according to Jewish law. And where does he get off doing it to a Roman anyway? Now, think about it. You've got two competing forces now. According to the law, you could not strike or hurt somebody who is uncondemned. He hasn't even been heard at this moment. They can't do this. The high priest is acting in contradiction to the very law of God. He is telling somebody to do that which is not lawful, which speaks a lot for the high priest at that moment. So anyway, but I want you to see the heart here. It says, the high priest Ananias commands him to be struck on the mouth, and then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. What you're seeing here, folks, Remember, the reason why we, one of the, I guess you would say, testimonies for this being the actual word of God is that it doesn't clean stuff up. I mean, if somebody commits adultery, it says they commit adultery. If it says that somebody commits incest, it says they commit incest. If it says somebody has done wickedness or evil, it just lays it out there for us. So what's happened is Paul, in his anger, he ends up getting smacked and he realizes, wait a minute. You can't do this. This is against laws, the, the law of God. And he says, you whitewashed wall. You know, you appear to be clean. You appear to be good. But in reality, you're not. So anyway, he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And you command me to be struck contrary to the law. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, some people have said Paul was saying this in jest. They said that what Paul was doing is he kind of looked in and he goes, really, that's the high priest? Sure, I didn't realize that was happening. But I don't know. A lot of your commentators today, and also with the apology of Paul, probably what happened is the high priest looked over and said, have him smacked. Is what he did. And so he went over there and just smacked him. And then Paul was just addressing the group as a whole. And then what happens is Paul, whenever they say to him, they said, wait a minute, the high priest ordered this. Why would you do that? Now, even though the high priest was wrong for what he did, I want you to see the heart. This goes back to the heart of David, okay, the heart of God in David. Do you remember whenever Saul is hating him, throwing javelins at him, trying to kill him, you know, and Paul's, excuse me, and David is having to flee for his life? And Saul, and I'm talking about King Saul, you know, he does all these things to try to destroy David. And David each time says, I will not lift my hand against God's anointed. I'm not going to do it. Now, did he probably have every right to, to defend his life? Yeah, probably. But the point is, is he realized that if God has established somebody, then it is God's prerogative to have that person removed. And even at the end, whenever Saul, excuse me, whenever David found out that Saul had been killed and a guy comes and says, well, I killed him, you know, and we know he fell on the sword. But anyway, 
when a guy claims to have done that, David even had the person killed. He said, that wasn't your place to do that. What you're seeing is an integrity and a righteousness in the heart of these people that is much greater than, than we see today. Even though the high priest may have been, and, and he was, a wicked man, and even though he ordered things that should not have been done, that's between him and God is what Paul was getting at. He said, if God has so allowed you to be the high priest, so be it. And he says, I'm sorry. I should not have spoken such a way. And it shows that he lives in submission to God, the very thing that they accused him of not doing. All right? Okay, I guess I need to stop. Tonight, would anybody like special prayer tonight? Does anybody need to be anointed or prayed for tonight? Anybody tonight? I don't want to cut it down. If anybody needs altar time, we'll open up the altars too. I just don't want to hold you over too much because then y'all start getting angry and I start getting those anonymous U-Haul guest certificates. You see, y'all didn't know this, but the truth is, is when a pastor leaves the church, he starts aggravating people, so he gets those gifts. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Let's pray tonight. Let's stand together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Father, we just open our hearts in prayer just to love you, to worship you, and before we dismiss tonight, we ask for your hand to be upon us. Father, please speak to us. Deal with us this week. Father, lead us. God, to do those things that would bring healing and help to all. God, I pray that we would be a light for you. I pray that we would be a voice for you. I pray that we are a witness in all kinds of ways with the actions of our life, the words of our mouth, and our meditations of our heart to everyone. Father, be glorified in us. May we never miss an opportunity to shine for you. Bless those who are hurting and sick. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We can, we can close tonight. I'm sorry, you are up here ready to sing. You want to sing anyway? You can, does anybody want to sing? We'll sing. We'll do it. All right, I'll tell you what. Tonight, God bless you. You're dismissed.